0: Into the Weird, episode 21, Swamp Tripping and Death Stalking.
1: Welcome to Into the Weird, a podcast celebrating the madness and magnificence of the mighty Marvel Bronze Age. I'm your host, Billy D, and alongside me is my co host, Herman Lowe. How are you, buddy?
0: Hey, Billy, I'm great. Thanks, man. Again, you and I are at the mics, ready for some weird, bizarre comic book Bronze Age action, and uh, that makes me uh, extremely uh, happy. A happy camper. <laughs> a happy camper in the swamp. As as, yeah, it, as as it were,
1: <laughs> yeah. As we teased on our uh, other episode, uh, you know, we let you know what we're going to be doing a couple uh, episodes ahead here and talking about our favorite uh, swamp monster. Well, at least one of our favorite swamp monsters. <laughs> he's my favorite swamp monster, but he's definitely our favorite Marvel swamp monster, right? <laughs> well, yeah.
0: I mean, the only Marvel swamp monster. <laughs> <laughs> and and I and I resent the fact that you forgot about the heap. <laughs> oh. No, I don't mean that man thinks third. No, not no not by a long shot. No, no way. The heap no. is definitely third. <laughs> but yeah, of course, we I'm not going to mention his name who's my favorite swan monster because that's that's a totally different podcast from for an alternate reality that might show up on an April Fools episode one day. But uh-huh. um yeah, the man thing. How can you not like him? You know, I mean, nose like a giant dong. <laughs> no, no, no. Nose like a vine.
1: Uh,
0: Eyebrows like vines, you know, and a giant man thing. Come on. Who doesn't like a man thing? Who doesn't right. like it? And
1: when, when you have the creators that are behind these two books we're going to talk about today writing these characters, oh, it's just, it's gold, you know, certain people could write the man thing and certain people tried and failed miserably. Uh, I'm looking at U.R.L. Stein, and
0: uh, <laughs> who? <laughs> that's
1: that's that's not a problem today. Believe me, there's there's no problem with good writing
0: today. <laughs> yeah, I don't even want to mention his infernal uh, adaptation or his infernal writing oh. on that that series. But you know, Man Thing, Gerber—that's all you need. That's really all you need, and a couple mm-hmm. other guys. But you know, um, Gerber's the man. Um, the man thing. If you want to take it, that's what Mary Screen said. Anyway, so we'll yep. get, get to these two issues. Again, listeners, this is a twofer, um, a, a weird double whammy that we're delivering for you. Two issues. I'll let Billy introduce them. Billy, what are the two comics under discussion today? Okay, so first up, uh, the one I'm going to be handling is
1: Daredevil 114 from uh, 1974. It is uh, kind of a bizarre story that is more of just a daredevil story that has you know, Man-Thing pop up in a couple of scenes but it's pretty much just a daredevil story. Man-Thing doesn't get a lot of love in this issue not as much as he should for sure but uh, it's, it's still a fun read and kind of just kooky and quirky uh, and then our second one we're going to be doing is Master of Kung Fu issue 19 from 1974 as well And you're going to be synopsizing that one. And that's uh, that's the much better of the two issues, uh, in my humble opinion.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, it's good that we're doing these crossovers, or not crossovers, I should say, these team-up issues. Because Man-Thing was so popular in the 70s, mostly because of Gerber, (laughs) but also because of the horror craze that was having a resurgence that he did then pop up in many titles, you know, as... uh, Um, uh, guest star. Sometimes he wouldn't even be credited. He would just be in the background for some reason and show (laughs) up. But, you know, there are memorable ones. Him and the Thing, you know, that's one we still got to talk about in the future. And, of Mm -hmm. course, Man-Thing and Spider-Man, that's always a fun one. And then Mm -hmm. this, well, classic team-up, which is not really a team-up between Daredevil and Man-Thing. He just shows up. He doesn't really team up or or actually fight Daredevil. But in the Shang-Chi one... It is more of a kind of a team-up issue. He's more of a presence there, but still not a lot. He just shambles about, looking cool, bringing the horror, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then at the end, he he normally steps in and uh, provides a type of, um, you know, ex machina kind of Deus ex machina effect. You know, but um, yeah, he's mm.
1: yeah he's the in the Daredevil issue. He's just a bookend, basically. Yeah, good, good, good <laughs> yeah, way to put that's, it. That's really all he is.
0: Very good way to put it. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm looking... uh, I'm very excited. I'm looking forward to talking about this. uh, Since, you know, like you mentioned, Man-Thing. We did a show on him before. I think the only one... The only episode we did from uh, featuring Man-Thing was our episode 3. Which is also a double-sized episode. And uh, we talked Man-Thing and Morbius. And, you know, he's a big deal for the Bronze Age. If you're a horror fan, if you're a fan of the weird and the the bizarre... Man-Thing has got to be up there. Man-Thing... Morbius, Doctor Strange, Howard the Duck—you know uh, those kind of guys. They they embodied the weird of Marvel, for me at least, back then.
1: Yeah, yeah. To me, the 1970s is the best because these kooky characters (laughs) were at the forefront and not shoved back in a little corner. And uh, rightly so, you know. When you look at the creators that were behind them, they were the top-notch guys of that day and age too. So you know, they really put everything they had into them like you said especially when you're talking about Steve Gerber he really he owned this character uh, and really you know his style of writing fit perfectly with a character that can't even talk you know so yeah it's just you know more kudos to him
0: yeah how how good do you have to be to make such an impression with a character who has absolutely no personality and no dialogue and still make him such a force in 70s Marvel you gotta be Gerber <laughs> you gotta be more than good you've gotta be Gerber good Mm -hmm. So Billy, are you going to go first? Um, I'll let you start off with the first synopsis, and Uh that is for our Daredevil issue. So take it away. Okay, so we have Daredevil 114,
1: 1974, like I said earlier, uh, Steve Gerber writer, and then art by Bob Brown and the infamous Vinnie Coletta. Hmm. Uh, colors, (laughs) Colors by Stan Goldberg, letters Charlotte Jetter. And the cover by your boy Gil Kane and Mike Esposito.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Gil Kane's bringing it! I kind of like Woo! this cover. Well done, Gil. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, definitely a, a nice cover. we got to talk about that one first, I guess, before we pr- provide the synopsis, right, Billy? Because, oh, uh, well, I mean, you could go with the synopsis first, too. Either way, it's just this cover is stunning. Right, well done, Gil. And Dan Atkins as the, the inker. Um, we we know him from Doctor Strange and from many other things. Um, I'm I'm not a fan per se, but I you know he delivers solid work most of the times. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what do you think about this cover? Oh, it's it's pretty
1: good. You know, I don't think it's their best work by far of the two. I think it's uh, second place to the other cover, but you mm-hmm. know we'll we'll get to that one eventually. But it's good. It's you know, Manting is mm-hmm. right there in the forefront where he should be, and then Dee, Dee holding a. Uh, uh, prone, I think that's supposed to be Richard Rory, yeah. but I don't think Richard Rory has that color hair. So I don't know if the colorist didn't get the memo or what there, but uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he has more like closer to blonde hair, doesn't he, Richard yeah. Rory, if I'm mistaken?
0: He <laughs> does, does, does. He does. He, he's kind of like a Roy right. Thomas <laughs> look. Yeah. yeah. A little bit, like a little Roy bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, what I like about this cover is, uh, okay, you've got the rare two-corner box system uh, here. Mm-hmm being displayed on a title that was actually only named after one character. You've got Daredevil, but at this point in time he was paired with Black Widow. You've also got the Black Widow corner box art to the far right of uh, you know, the Daredevil logo. And then you've got Daredevil in one of his better, I think, corner box art segments. Not as good as the Frank Miller one where you see the the, the radar sends rating rating out from his head while he's sitting on the, you know, perched on a, a building. Mm-hmm. But this one's pretty good with him running towards you in the fore- foreground. Almost looks like Gil Kane also was responsible for that um, cover art, although it, it it might be someone else. It might be John Romita uh, Sr., I'm not sure. But um, I like that one with Dare- Daredevil sort of running out of the corner box towards you. And another thing I want to mention about the cover is uh, the Man Thing himself, you know, they really, Gil Kane really accentuated his claws because that's one of the biggest differences other than the face and the vines and the, you know, between Man Thing and Swamp uh, Thing. Man mm-hmm. Thing has these giant ass claws, which seems that it mm-hmm. could rip. I mean, it, it makes Sabretooth from the X Men, well, from the X Men universe claws looks like, you know, confetti <laughs> because wow, if you don't want to be slashed by Man Thing. Uh, but he never, he didn't, he doesn't use it nearly as much as he as he should, I think. Um, but uh, he looks suitably ominous in this, and it, it obviously made to look like he's gonna have a confrontation with Daredevil. He's menacing Daredevil on the cover, and Daredevil's out of his depth, literally and figuratively, because he's in a swamp. That's not his. I mean, he's an urban superhero. He's not supposed to be in a swamp. This is not his territory. He's gonna find fighting there very hard and man things in his element. So it looks like a very scary, horror-type, menacing cover.
2: We'll be back after a quick break.
0: It's time to take a ride down the audiobook trail. I am John McLean. Welcome to the podcast. I ended up discovering the world of audiobooks and thinking, you know what? I've found my spot. We'll do bloopers because I have thousands of them. I love a good story. And, you know, I have to admit... As far as vocations go, this one's pretty cool. This
2: is the Audiobook Trail Podcast. We're going
0: to drop a 30-minute episode every two weeks. Audiobooktrail.com
1: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, just to, before I get into the synopsis, just to let you know, you know DD and the supporting cast aren't down there just on a vacation or anything like that. It was... Uh, one of the characters that was introduced, uh, Candace Nelson, Foggy Nelson's sister. Yeah, uh, she was she was down there in the Everglades doing a story on uh, a gentleman named Ted Salas that had been doing some, uh, you know, uh, scientific work down there, and then he disappeared. So she was kind of doing a like an expose or whatever on uh, on that ca-
0: Yeah, character wasn't that the. Uh, also, she there's some some mention of this Operation Sulfur, that um, that she had, uh, you know, it's the Weapon Four project or something. I, I don't know what it was, but anyway, that's that's a more recent name of it. This Operation Sulfur was basically, you know, a project spearheaded by Ted Salas, right, Billy, to mm-hmm. uh, develop a super soldier serum, the the two kind of super soldier serum after the Cap one. Um, right. To create super soldiers. So I think, uh, I'm not exactly sure, but I think the name of it was Operation Sulfur or Project Sulfur, which was to create, uh, you know, the super soldier serum. So as you know, other than, you know, different than Swamp Thing, than you know, um, <clears throat> Alec Holland, uh, who tried to, in you know, for the good of humanity, invent something. Yeah, uh, bio-restored the formula that would help the Earth uh, Ted Salas was actually working for the government to create a super soldier serum uh, uh-huh. you know, in the swamp so <laughs> that's that's one of the distinct differences but you know, um, yeah so obviously Candice uh, knows about this she's doing a story on Ted and she knows about his involvement in the past so that's, that's an interesting bit um, of an aside here linking her to the Daredevil universe and to the Man-Thing universe
1: yeah, for sure. So, because I mean, the, the issue does start already kind of in progress, you know, leading in from the issue before. So, but there was no man thing in the issue before. So, that's why we, you know, wanted to roll with this issue.
0: So, yeah, this isn't a Daredevil little. podcast, folks. This is a podcast of the weird. <laughs> daredevil have to up his level of weirdness significantly for us to do <laughs> an issue focused solely on him. But there were a couple of weird ones that Colin drew in the in the oh yeah so never say never we'll we'll definitely get to one of the weirdest daredevil issues one day
1: (laughs) yeah i mean if this was a podcast about uh men who are jackasses and treat women terribly then daredevil would fit right in he'd be the the lead character probably
0: he'd be the poster boy (laughs) right next to hank pym definitely
1: (laughs) 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 so okay all right here i'll fire off the synopsis and then we can get into it um our story begins already in progress as the Death Stalker and his henchman, the Gladiator, are about to kill Daredevil. Yes, the man without fear has come to the Everglades, and lucky for him, our favorite muck monster is there to save his hide. You see, the Death Stalker is here to obtain the formula Ted Salas was working on years earlier. Switch scenes to another place as Natasha, the Black Widow, is in pain. As she feels that Matt isn't treating her very well, she phones Foggy to talk to, excuse me, to talk to uh, Matt, but he's not in the office, and Foggy lets her know that he's down in Florida. Back in Florida, the, De- the Stalker and Gladiator have Daredevil, Candace Nelson, Foggy's sister, and Richard Rory, t- trussed up in a cabin in a swamp. After getting the information he needs, the Death Stalker has Gladiator pour gasoline all over the cabin and light it on fire. <laughs> okay, Herman. So let's get into this. Yeah. Craziness.
0: <laughs> oh man, that's crazy. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, great. I did like the action in this issue a lot. Other other than the fact that you know, okay, most of it is centered around Daredevil. You know, fighting Death Stalker, um, and you've got you know Gladiator there as well. You know. Because Lariush is about to kill him, if if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. right, Billy, be- before yeah. Man-Thing steps in. And, uh, you know, so Deathstalker turns out to be way more powerful than I ever remember him being in other comics. Because he takes out the Man-Thing a little bit for, the, for a while there. He seems to have, you know, obviously strength equal to or greater than the Man-Thing. And then, you know, obviously he's got, like, you know, some powers that Dee Dee doesn't know about. Because Daredevil steps in and, you know, Deathstalker seems to be able to sort of phase in and out of existence, like become, you know, Mm -hmm. immaterial, intangible, or whatever you call it. So, you know, a Deathstalker is a villain that, I mean, Daredevil normally fights villains that are more powerful than him, you know, and then his skill sort of saves the day. But, you know, here, wow, he's out of a depth, so he really needs Man-Thing's help here. But Man-Thing, surprisingly, not portrayed as very, very effective in the very beginning (laughs) of the issue
1: yeah i mean this uh, from the splash page it looks awesome because <laughs> it co- it's called a quiet night in the swamp oh yeah and in in the forefront you see man thing as uh, grabbing gladiator because he was just about to like cut daredevil's head off with one of his you know saw blades, saw blades. Uh, mm. and in the background you have a uh, death stalker doing this you know dracula pose and it just looks like awesome i love it you know it's you know, Bob Brown's a good penciler, you know. A lot could be said about the inks of Vince coletta but it's still a pretty good page. But
0: yeah, you know, well, Vince he, yeah, Vince coletta wasn't always, you know, uh bad. I, I, but I would say 70% to 80% of the time he was. But um here I think yeah, Bob Brown like you say his pencils are good. So good that, you know, you can't actually complain about much, right, Billy?
1: Yeah, no. It's 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 pretty good artwork, you know what I mean like I said. It's, you know, like I said Bob Brown he's good and if Coletta had time, he was okay too. But like you said, it's really weird because you, see, <laughs> you see, like you said, the Death Stalker, and he's probably more of like you know a B villain, but he really looks more powerful than anybody in this uh, comic that I had seen up until this point, as far as a villain goes. Because you figure Man Thing is a pretty you know strong opponent, and he can't do anything. He gets like basically pimp slapped away. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the death stalker and I love his the death stalker too he's one of those villains that has a you know he has his uh, uh, verbal flourishes down pat you know the man thing approaches him and he says you hesitate monster why can it be <laughs> that you sense the power I hold that you know instinctively that my touch is the touch of death and he swats
0: <laughs> him away like a fly yeah he just swats him <laughs> away that's what bugged me I mean this is the man thing come on mm-hmm. the dude the dude arguably has the, the strength of I'm not gonna say the, the Hulk level strength, but I'm gonna say at least course, very yeah. high up in the Marvel, you know um, if you think about the strongest folks in the Marvel, I would put him up high up there, you know at least. So I mean he he the thing, you know he's he he went toe to toe with the thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so you know um, but yeah, you're right uh, some some crazy battles here. And you know, I've always, even though Daredevil had some wonky villains back then, I've, I've always been a fan of Gladiator. I mean, especially in the Daredevil Netflix show, he, he Melvin Potter, you know, being his ulti- his um, his real name, <laughs> he was a very sweet little innocent weapons designer, and, and I liked him uh-huh. even more then. But in the comic book, you know, I, I did like him. He was, uh he turned up every now and then, but that was before, obviously, I met Bullseye, you know, then Bullseye became the ultimate Daredevil villain for me, but... You know, um, before that, I guess it was Gladiator. You know, I just I just find Daredevil's battles with him good, and um, I like it when Daredevil beats up on a guy, you know, with knives or swords or like in this case uh, these chain blades or these razor blades. So um, yeah, and they're fighting in a swamp. That's that's already like for me a very weird scene to have Daredevil in. But you know, Daredevil did go to weird places in the... 60s and early 70s um, before, you know, they kept him in the New York environment. Uh, you know, after that, he did, like, most of the Marvel heroes, he traveled around, right, Billy? Spider-Man even. Did yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had D.D., like you said, you know, most of the heroes were in New York, but he was out in San Francisco for a while and now he's down in Florida. So it's they had D.D. pop around quite a lot, but, oh my gosh, it, my favorite part here, you gotta love the, the dialogue between Deathstalker and Gladiator. Once Deathstalker has defeated Daredevil and Man-Thing, <laughs> Gladiator, who had already been burned by the Man-Thing, says, I don't understand. If you can kill with your touch, why did not you stop the monster before he burned me? <laughs> and Deathstalker <laughs> says, because, fool, I wanted to see the beast's power for myself. You see, I suspect, and Gladiator, suspect? I don't care what you suspect. That thing might have killed me. <laughs> and, <laughs> The stalker just like, yeah, and I might have allowed it if I thought it was necessary, and he's like, he really puts Gladiator in his place, but then Gladiator thinks to himself, once I learn how your death touch works, yeah. my mysterious master, we shall discuss this incident again, I promise you, but yeah, that never yes. comes to pass. <laughs> oh,
0: man, that's funny. Yeah, the thing is... <laughs> You know the, the, the fact that he, he realizes that he can't argue with this much more powerful foe, but he also <clears throat> thinks to himself like, okay, this is a secret to be learned once he acquires the power of the death touch, which uh, puts me in mind of Bloodsport, Billy, <laughs> <You> remember? <laughs> JVD's Bloodsport, the death touch. Anyway, so, um, you know, <laughs> it's just funny, you know, the way Gladiator thinks, like, okay, we're going to have words, but only once I learn the death touch too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I like how he talks down to him like there's a little like Doctor Doom in the Deathstalker here. He's got some like
0: you pee on like how dare you yeah. <laughs> <He> question me. <laughs> and then, you know, I like <laughs> the fact that Death Deathstalker, you know, he he takes Gladiator and and who is it? Richard Rory, you know, back mm-hmm. to his hideout because he wants to interrogate them, torture them probably, and then, you know, off them eventually. And yeah. then that the, where he takes them, his headquarters is in fact Ted Salas's old home, you know, and that's also where they begin interrogating Candace, you know, Foggy's Mm. sister over, you know, her involvement or her knowledge of whatever, you know, this Operation Sulphur is, (laughs) which is just the super soldier serum 2.0 development. But yeah. And then, I mean, we've also got some scenes out of the swamp. I don't know if you want to talk about them. They're not really man thing related, but we've got some Foggy and Black Widow action in New York. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, basically that's just in line with with what's been happening in the Daredevil comic, you know, in, in line with the, the overall um, uh, story. Um, I, I don't I don't know exactly what's happening, but I know Black Widow's looking for Matt. and then um, yeah, and, and Foggy's there well, and he's yeah.
1: yeah, he's been treating her like crap. and then there was a, a time where you know the the book if you recall like i think it was an issue 80 81 82 somewhere in there it started out it was daredevil and the black widow like that was the name of the book like it said that on the you know on the masthead yeah. but uh he he you know he'd treat her okay and then he'd treat her like crap and then he'd go off and then his ex-girlfriend showed up uh oh uh, karen page karen, karen page yeah yeah and then She'd go away, and then uh, oh gosh, what's that superhero? The lady with the bald head and the mental powers, Moon, moon uh, Dragon. Moon yeah, dragon? she shows mm. she shows up, and he starts making goo-goo eyes at her. So yeah. he's <laughs> he's really not a nice person to uh, the the ladies in his life. You know, he has Black Widow, who you know obviously has feelings for him, but he keeps you yeah. know looking in other directions. So that's what's going on between the two of them. She's ready to pack it in because he's not
0: been. So yeah. nice. <laughs> I'm glad she packed it in, man. Because yes, yeah, Black Widow. I know folks from way back when always associate her with Daredevil, but for me, it's always been Elektra and Daredevil. But you know, if you look mm-hmm. at Daredevil's track record with women before Elektra and even with Elektra, it's not very yeah. uh, promising. <laughs> and also because he sometimes acts like a, a total douchebag towards them. So yeah, uh, you're right. Not not a good look. I'm I'm on Black Widow's side in this. Um, so yeah, not 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 a good time for for Daredevil actually, you know, in, in personality wise, I would say.
1: Yeah. So then here we go. With more of these lovely dialogue between Deathstalker and him talking down to Gladiator. <laughs> he, he gets what the information he wants from uh, Foggy's sister Candace. So then he's going to take her out of there, and she says, "Wait, what are you going to do to them?" And he goes, "Why?" Kill them, of course. <laughs> and he tells Gladiator to dump gas all over the place and kill them. But he, uh, he, he, agains thinking to himself, and he's like, "I have my orders from the man who owns me, and I dare not disobey." And then, <laughs> dot, 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 just yet. Yeah. <laughs> so Gladiator's trying to grow some balls here, but not yet. He can't do it. And then he lights the place up, and it looks like Daredevil's a goner. But enter Manny, and Manny comes and saves the day. But that's that's something i don't understand like it drives me a little crazy like he saves the day and daredevil kind of helps get richard rory out of there but you know you come outside and there's man thing holding gladiator like a baby
0: <laughs> like a rag doll like he
1: like just slapped him down like a child oh. he's knocked out
0: <laughs> well i mean he's one of the lucky ones because if you think about it when the man thing normally tussles with you the fear o- overwhelms you and that's when you get torched you know, because uh-huh. as we know, Billy, that classic line, whatever knows fear,
1: uh-huh. burns. Burns his touch. Yeah, and he did burn, but you know, yeah, he, really
0: he did. He did, <laughs> but, you know, the guy was still alive, so lucky him. <laughs> Damn, we'll talk later about uh, some protagonists who, whoa, who weren't that lucky <laughs> encountering the man thing. But, yeah, I mean, I, I did really enjoy this issue because, I mean, but, but think about it. This is a classic James Bond-type death trap where the, the the mm-hmm. head villain entrusts his henchmen to, to oversee the demise of his foes and Daredevil and Richard Rory being tied up in Ted Salis' old home and then Gladiator torching the place without killing them first you know obviously so you think he would at least take them out before he torches the place but that allows Daredevil ample time you know well he revives and he escapes and carries Richard mm-hmm. outside but you know it's just like oh man this is such a classic villain trope them being too foolhardy or too nonchalant to care to look after the details of the death trap because he easily, mm-hmm. he easily gets out of there. And, yeah, so, um but a great issue. Um, I like it when Man-Thing interacts with Marvel heroes that you don't normally think would ever interact with Man-Thing. And this is Daredevil doing it, you know, so very, very satisfying, strangely. Right, Billy? Yeah, it's definitely
1: a weird team-up and for me, there's not enough Manny, in the issue no. but i mean you know I, I hey if gerber was writing a story and i mean he was probably writing man thing and he might have been writing daredevil at this point as well No, he was uh, yeah, he as was. the regular Briefly, writer because he yeah. wrote some really weird kooky stories there in the early 100s you know uh, mm-hmm. with all those uh the, like i said the moon dragon and all those other weird villains that she was kind of being a puppeteer with but uh Yeah, you can't go wrong. It's always a a Gerber written issue is always at least, you know, fun. And this is a fun one. A lot of funny dialogue and stuff like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Lots of good villains. Gerber's so good at writing a villain. I just Mm -hmm. love it. I mean, most of the time he doesn't create them himself. Of course, there have been many that he has created. But, you know, when he writes an established villain, he always makes it more interesting than some previous writers. Not always, but you know what I mean. He, he, He puts a good spin on every character. We see that with the Defenders all the time. You know, oh, him, yeah. him writing old established villains and putting a new twist on them. Um, and then, you know, um, I like the fact that Daredevil rids himself, because they're in a swamp, obviously. He rids himself of Gladiator by literally just driving him in his guise as Mad Murdoch. He drives him out away where the authorities can find him and <laughs> take him away. <laughs> in New York, he would just leave him lying in an alley, battered senseless and... The cops uh-huh. will find him. But here he has, actually has to get in a car and do some legwork, drive him out to, to where the cops can pick <laughs> him up. And Rory too. And then, um, uh-huh. yeah, and then that's it. I don't think we need to say anything else about the the more Daredevil-related stuff. Of, no. Um, but, but, you know, obviously by this time, at the end of the issue, Deathstalker is still a presence because, um, you know, he's kidnapped Foggy. And he's holding Candace hostage. So he's definitely a scary mm-hmm. villain for, for Dee Dee back then, especially a villain that can slap the man thing, knock him for a loop. You're going to have to kind mm-hmm. of think Daredevil's going to have some trouble dealing with this guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, but mm-hmm. then, I mean, that's that's basically how it ends, right, Billy? With uh, yeah Foggy having to decide whether he is, he's going to sell out Matt uh, to, to save his sister, because that's the choice he's being given by mm-hmm. Deathstalker. Roughly, roughly. Yeah, so, but, yep. but yeah, great issue. Really, really good issue. Got Lots of good action scenes. So well done, Bob Brown, on illustrating them.
2: We'll be back after a quick break.
0: Ever wish you could sip cocktails and discuss great books with your friends while hanging out in a rundown piano bar? Here on the Literary Guys podcast, that's what we do. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallum. And I'm author Zachary Kellyan. Each month, we discuss books from two different views of modern masculinity, from both a gay and a straight perspective, from To Kill a Mockingbird, to future governors in the jungle trying to kill a predator. We welcome everyone to join our conversation on the good and toxic of what literature and pop culture have to say about masculinity. So pour yourself a drink and join us now for Season 3. Literary Guys. That's G-U-I-S-E. LiteraryGuys.com. I see what you did there.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was yeah, like I said, fun issue. Nothing earth shattering, but just fun. A good fun issue, Bronze Age issue to pick up and read. Fun.
0: Yeah, there, it's kind of like one of those issues where you'll you'll pick it up from the corner store when you're a kid, you'll read it, you'll you'll lend it to your friends, and then eventually, after a couple of weeks, you'll ask for it back. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah. because yeah, it is a it is a good issue. You know, it's not one of those that you just want to permanently give away. You want to keep it. Yeah, for so sure enjoyable so are we getting into the next issue yeah why don't LA? we
1: head into uh,
0: well Kung well, Fu. well now we're getting into the, the meat of the episode mm. not that Daredevil could also be linked to the Kung Fu craze a little bit you know he's got some mad martial arts chops Uh Dee don't get me wrong I mean I, one thing I think always think about is in the, in the early 80s when the Power Man and Iron Fist series uh, hit it big um Iron Fist and Power Man, they, they once encountered Daredevil, you know, uh, a couple mm-hmm. of times. But, but 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 during their very first encounter, Iron Fist even expressed admiration for Daredevil. You know what I mean, Billy? His skills, yeah. Yeah, his skills. He said, like, he's always... I, 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 this is just off the top of my head, but I remember that very first meeting between Iron Fist and Daredevil. It was because Heroes for Hire... Were hired to do something against Daredevil's interests, so they had this brief tussle where Daredevil and Iron Fist sparred, and then Daredevil decided to when when Luke Cage showed up, he decided to cut out and run because this was not, none of his concern, right? So he he leaped up and away across the buildings, and Iron Fist said something like, "Wow, that that was Daredevil. Huh? I've always wanted to meet him. I've always admired him. So if someone like Iron Fist says that." God, you've got to have some kind of presence in the martial arts realm in Marvel. Sure, absolutely. Yeah,
1: DD's underrated.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, But now, Billy, we get to the guy who puts them all under the table. Mm-hmm. And that is the son of Fu Manchu, the master of Kung Fu himself, Shang-Chi, and his mm-hmm. deadly hands, deadly hands of Kung Fu. So, as you mentioned, this issue... Uh, Master of Kung Fu, number 19. Um, This is from, uh, cover dated at least, August 1974, but I think it was only released uh, earlier than that, which was uh, in May of 1974. And uh, editor Roy Thomas, written by Steve Englehart, one of our favorites. And you'll see, it's definitely written by Englehart because (laughs) Mm -hmm. this this issue features a drug, (laughs) the Mimosa (laughs) drug. (laughs) We'll get to that. We know, we know how much Engelhardt loves his uh, psychedelic substances. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: And then we've got a penciler, Paul Gillesi, The one of the greats. Obviously, my, oh, yeah. my favorite pencilers on my Master of Kung Fu have always been the Brothers Day, especially Gene Day the, Jean from Day, the later yeah. issues. But Paul Gulacy, wow, how can you... This guy, he's, he's a genius. He's a master of uh, comic book illustration, no doubt. And then Inker, Alan Milgram. Al Milgram, Mm -hmm. letterer Tom Arkowski, colorist Stan Goldberg. And um, uh, this has recently obviously been reprinted in the Master of Kung Fu Omnibus editions. So this this will be found in Omnibus number one. And then you can also find it in the Deadly Hands of Kung Fu um, special, which they reprinted in 1975. That's Deadly Hands of Kung Fu number 15. And, of course, they're also available on the Marvel app, same as the Daredevil issue, which you can find in the Daredevil Essentials as well, or the Masterworks, if you're of a mind to pick them up. So, you know, Master of Kung Fu. Billy, I think we should talk about the color, uh, the cover first. Cover by Gil Kane again. <laughs> Damn, Kane's all over the place in the Bronze Age cover art. Now, uh, inked by Tom Palmer from Tomb of Dracula fame, whom we both adore. I really... I'm. I mean, this cover is not anything spectacular, but I love it. I just love the fact that Chang Chi is is putting his foot in a Gongfu kick maneuver. He's putting his foot through the man thing's thigh. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Oh yeah, it's awesome. I like this one better than the other one.
0: What a cover! Uh, man. What it's just,
1: God. you know, just the muscles and the kicks and the punches and man thing. It's just, I don't know, I like this one a lot better than the other one. The other one's good, scary, you know, whatever. But this one has more action on it, and I like this one much better than the, than the DD issue yeah.
0: cover. Again, a great bit of corner box art as well, right, Billy? We've got Shang-Chi in a, mm-hmm. in a typical Gong Fu pose. Not my favorite corner box. The favorite, My favorite Shang-Chi corner box art came later, where you just have the upper half of Shang-Chi's body. Uh, sans his shirt you know he's all sweaty looking <laughs> lee like with his metal um wrist guards and he's um looking like he's recently walked out of a, a rain about <laughs> of rain, and then he's just like posing in a Bruce Lee way i think listeners you all know which one i'm talking about the one that was featured later mm-hmm. on from from issues 90 upwards to to the end of the series but this one pretty good too this is more like the early bronze age kind of style uh, Shang-Chi right. in this Kung Fu poach with his full attire. Now, it, it it must be said that in most cases when Shang-Chi got involved in a fight, much like Luke Cage, his shirt always suffered. It always got torn off, torn to shreds, <laughs> ripped off, or sometimes just discarded by Shang <laughs> to, oh, yeah. to make for a greater like Bruce Lee type of effect. Okay, one cri- or, or two criticisms I have. I don't like the way Gerber... Oh, uh, sorry, what am I saying, Gerber here? Sorry, Gil Kane draws the Man-Things back. It looks like he's dried up and cracking. Uh, where mm-hmm. I'm thinking those are supposed to be vines that he's trying to uh, draw on the man. one of the Man-Things' shoulder blades, but it looks more like the Man-Things a dry piece of mud. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, that's cracking open. And then um, uh, Shang-Chi is drawn a little bit too muscular for my likes. I mean, when I think about him, I think of him as lean, mean, you know, um, Bruce Lee-type, you know, which is obviously which he had been modeled after. I don't like to see a muscular Conan esque Shang Chi, if you know what I mean, Billy. What do you think about this cover?
1: Yeah, I agree with you. He look, does look a little thick there, uh, but otherwise, like you said, it's pretty good. I, I can't, other than a couple of you know criticisms you just levied, it's it's pretty good. I mean, like I said, man thing, where those cracks are that look like vines, almost looks like a. Usually, when people draw the man thing. He, his body is usually, there's not like parts bulging out like that, where those cracks are. Yeah. And I mean, it looks like almost like a, a giant wart on
0: his back. Oh, yeah, that too. Up. Yeah. What are those things? Yeah, warts. Like, they, they look it's like warts. It's bizarre. Yeah. Really it's Other crazy.
1: than that, though, it's, it's cool. I like it. You know, a little bit too muscular on Shang-Chi, but yeah, the kick and
0: the mm. you know,
1: muck flying everywhere. It's a cool cover. The, the I, con- overall, yeah. I like it.
0: You're right. The conception of the cover is the thing that really stands out mm-hmm. to me. The fact that this is how he visualize them in the swamp meeting together it's it's a great action pose on the part of shang chi and a fantastic looming kind of leering pose on the man thing so it's monster versus martial arts master basically you get that right off the bat well done gil kane and tom palmer on that all right billy so um uh, is there anything else i forgot to mention before we get into the synopsis i think not um one more thing that I do want to say is before we, you know, I, I did not include this in my synopsis listeners. Um, basically, what happened is Shang-Chi in the previous issue, in issue 18, I just, I'm just going to mention that so that you know where we're at. He was involved in foiling one of his father Fu Manchu's schemes. Um, as Fu Manchu was importing this drug called the Mimosa Oil, which was the type of drug that he was um, bringing in on a ship and he was... Um, you know, disguising it as regular, you know, gasoline. And Shang-Chi discovered mm-hmm. this plan. And then Shang-Chi, in an in a incredibly badass move, he was captured because the mimosa drug, he tasted it like you see cops do on 80s TV shows, you know, when they, oh, oh, what is this oh, bag is this of cocaine? Yeah. What is this bag of white power? Oh, this is my favorite part of the job. Licking my finger and dipping it into this cocaine. <laughs> That's what Shang-Chi was guilty of. <laughs> he discovered uh-huh. this stash this depot of his father's mimosa drug which is a hallucinogen that can be used as a weapon it's a weaponized hallucinogen and he shang chi dipped his finger into this barrel of mimosa (laughs) oil licking it completely knocking himself out i mean folks this is written by engelhardt so what do you expect in this Mm -hmm. psychedelic um, episode uh, Shang-Chi succumbs to these hallucinogenic nightmares, and then his father captures him. They tie him up. They tie his hands behind his back. Now, this is how badass Shang-Chi is. He, he escapes. He beats up one of his father's assassins, hands tied behind his back, and then he's fighting on a bluff, and then he manages to get hold of a torch in his mouth, Billy. <laughs> and then he flicks the torch up into the air and with a, a supremely accurate Gong Fu slash, let's say, Stephen Chow, Gong Fu soccer kind of kick. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, Gong Fu soccer. Gong Fu, oh, no. you know, anyway, um, let's 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 use an analogy you will know since you're a big soccer guy. Uh, you know, this is like Messi, you know, but slash Messi mm. master of Gong Fu soccer, right? Oh, Kicking what? this torch after he flicks <laughs> it up into the air from his mouth He kicks this torch at the at because they're on a bluff, right? He kicks it at the ship below, and the torch falls through the hull, into the hold, igniting the mimosa and the mimosa oil, and boom bada boom, this entire ship blows up. Wow. (laughs) Talk about (laughs) badass. And then Shang Chi Mm -hmm. jumps off the bluff, still hands tied behind his, his back, and swims to safety. Now, between that issue and this issue, Shang-Chi has since freed himself of the restraints on his wrists behind his back. He's since swum all the way along the coast to escape because uh, at the end of issue 18, Fu Manchu was, you know, obviously mad for revenge. He was, he was really incensed, yeah. pissed that his mimosa scheme <laughs> has blown up. So he sends these two elite assassins, which he's been grooming, you know, to yeah. just to destroy his son, Shang-Chi. He sends mm-hmm. them to hunt Shang-Chi down. Now, Shang-Chi, at this point in time, he has been injured by this giant explosion. He's tired from having to swim with hands tied behind his back for miles. That's what's mentioned in the beginning of issue 19. And mm-hmm. that is sort of where, you know, we, we pick it up, right, Billy? So I'm going to quickly give uh-huh. the synopsis. Okay, so after foiling... Fu Manchu's plots this is in Florida listeners Shang-Chi uh-huh. has to swim for it when he comes ashore two Sai Fan assassins that has that I mentioned earlier that's been groomed to take him out Jecken and Dahar are waiting for him now Shang-Chi manages to escape briefly escape their deadly attentions by um, you know using his skill and uh, also a giant tree trunk and slamming them into the swamp and then he thinks at this point in time that he's he's killed them so he is uh, briefly safe, he walks away, uh, but he's still plagued by these intermittent illusions, courtesy of the mimosa drug he mm-hmm. in- ingested. <laughs> yeah, imbibed. <laughs> imbibed, that's it, that's the right word. He imbibed. And then, you know, he encounters the man thing in a strange, weird Gerber esque dream sequence, but obviously this is courtesy of our boy Steve. Uh, Shang Chi encounters the man thing and. Uh, Kudos to Shang-Chi because he does not show any fear. Hence, he's not burned by the Man-Thing's touch. In fact, using his failing Kung Fu skills, because he's succumbing to this drug, he gets stuck in the Man-Thing's torso. (laughs) And again, and the Man-Thing just shambles off with (laughs) Shang-Chi, carrying him around as his torso. And then, um, beating the odds, they encountered um, another... Uh, man in the swamp. Another Asian man. Also an Asian philosopher, similar to Shang-Chi, called Lu Sun. And Lu Sun manages to free Shang-Chi from the man-thing. It seems that Lu Sun has a kind of respect, or at least a kind of relationship with the man-thing. He's almost like the man-thing's gardener or or shepherd, in this case. Uh, He takes care of Shang-Chi, takes him to his hut, and then in the swamp, in the Everglades. This is now in the Everglades, folks. Shang-Chi then has a flashback of an old school friend called Kui Meng. And he remembers he Kui Meng told him his father was evil. And then Shang-Chi confronted his dad, asking him if what Kui Meng said was true. But Fu Manchu, uh, of course, denied everything. And after that, Kui Meng never turned up again in young Shang-Chi's classes, but he never thought twice about it. Of course, his father had confirmed that he's not evil, so he trusted in his dad. Alright, after that brief flashback, possibly induced by the Mimosa drug, um, elsewhere in the swamp, we see a fleet of empty trucks bouncing along a dirt road. Uh, They still have some leftover Mimosa oil in barrels being carted along in the back of these trucks. And then Fu Manchu is present in this convoy, which is very strange, seeing Fu Manchu accompanying his (laughs) henchmen or delivery boys on a a supply (laughs) run. Um, mm-hmm. or on a delivery run. But they are uh, confronted by uh, Dennis Nyland Smith, the enemy of Fu Manchu, and his faithful bodyguard, Blackjack Tar. They managed to ambush this convoy and kill all of Fu Manchu's cronies, but Fu Manchu himself has once again escaped. He's mysteriously disappeared. And again, uh, Dennis Nyland Smith has been denied vengeance. And then we uh, head back into... Uh, the swamp where now Shang-Chi is recovering and he's in fact now engaging in a philosophical discussion with Lu Sun asking him about is it right for a son to challenge his father and Lu Sun says one may overcome another one army may overcome another army but the world is not changed man will always contend basically saying that whatever Shang-Chi is doing is fruitless (laughs) (laughs) A waste of time. Exactly. Whether he (laughs) opposes Fu Manchu or not, it all leads to the same thing in the end. So then, um, uh, abruptly, um, the two assassins, Jekin and Dahar, show up again. They, in fact, had not perished in the swamp. They were made of tougher stuff. And this time, they perforate Lu Sun with some arrows before engaging in a spectacular battle with Shang-Chi, who sadly, giving a great accounting of himself... Uh, even though he's still under the the effects of this Mimosa drug, but the swamp itself proves to be Shang-Chi's doing as he accidentally steps in quicksand. And having taken out one of the assassins, Shang-Chi is about to be beheaded by another when the man-thing abruptly steps in, much like he did in the Daredevil issue. And uh-huh. he grabs a hold of the assassins, both of the assassins at this point in time, and the overwhelming fear that they feel causes an explosion of flame to emanate from the Man-Thing's body, immolating these two fools. (laughs) And that is basically the end of the story. So luckily, Lu Sun has survived his, you know, um, ordeal at the hands of their arrows and he pulls Shang-Chi out of the quicksand and then he wanders away. And that's basically how the story ends. Brilliant issue, Billy. I don't know what you thought about that, but some crazy action excellent plot amazing set pieces in this one what did you what's your overall impression yeah
1: i mean engelhart he did a much better job of interweaving you know man thing with the shang chi story here than uh gerber did with the daredevil book i mean this was it did seem like a really good you know shang chi story but also you know bringing in the man thing too and I mean three three parts to this book that just blow me away and mostly because of the art but again Steve Englehart was great too that opening splash page uh, with man thing and Shang-Chi there that is an incredible splash page and then like you said the very last double page you know two page spread where I've never seen this before but I like it where the man thing you know everything that knows fear burns at the touch of the man thing and he just <laughs> almost like like a fireball like explodes out of them. I guess these guys were really freaking scared and just incinerates these two assassins.
0: Damn, I, I've never seen the Man-Thing's flame, flame touch, his, his, his burning touch, uh, you know, have this effect much. I mean, once he did this to a bear in Man-Thing Volume 2 when he was st- briefly stuck in the Himalayas because of some weird yes. teleportation device. Do you remember that issue? Did oh. he like
1: fall off an airplane or something? Yeah, they, they were <laughs> hanging
0: onto a biplane, and he had this this girl in his arms, and uh, yeah, um, basically they landed in the Himalayas. <laughs> that was a very cool. We we gotta talk about that story in the future. That was one of my favorite childhood okay. issues, but um, mm-hmm. sorry to get get off on a tangent here, listeners. But basically, normally the man thinks touch is considered more almost acidic. You know, it's it's got this burning effect, but it's more like an acid burn. Which, which yeah. then friction probably could lead to it becoming flame or, you know, um, whatever materials being touched could. But, but normally it's not portrayed as this giant conflagration of fire, like exploding out of these guys. But this is what happened in this case. Uh, it was changed over time to become more like fire, you know, the more like, fi- uh, you know. But this was early yeah. days. This was 1974. So this is already a little bit strange. But I didn't mind it because these guys, what, what this said to me, Billy, is they felt so much fear that it actually culminates in this inferno, this supernova. Yeah. <laughs> wow, these guys. I mean, okay, but the whole issue is not so much about Man Thing for me as about the badassery of Shang-Chi. Think about yeah. it. How often has Shang-Chi been wounded or out of, he's been out of sorts or he's been drugged or he's been out of his element and he has still prevailed? This This guy is just... He's incredible. He's one of my favorite Bronze Age characters. I don't always associate him with Into the Weird, though, right, Billy? Because his stories are more spy-type tales, you know, of espionage mm-hmm. and uh, international espionage and intrigue and James Bond-esque and, uh, yeah. with a strong Bruce Lee flavor. But it's not, you know, it, it doesn't always have that weird, it warrants the, the weird kind of uh, discussions that we normally have on Into the Weird. But, man, this guy's a staple of the Bronze Age and he's I mean my favorite comic book issue of all time this is now across the board it's not actually a horror comic it's Master of Kung Fu number 114 have you ever read that comic Billy? oh wow no huh? that's my single favorite and that's one of the reasons I came to Asia actually you know, that and Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding about the last one. But but really, when I was a kid, when I was a youth, I was fascinated by Asia because of this portrayal in that comic of Hong Kong. Uh, it's uh, Shang-Chi, Master of Gong Fu, number 114, A Fantasy of the Autumn Moon. I'll post some pictures of it, you know, on, on the blog of this episode just to because we talked about it Billy you gotta get that issue it's an amazing story it's great it's set against the backdrop of a Chinese holiday the, the moon festival you know the festival of the autumn moon and it's a nice one and done tale of Shang-Chi and uh, you know the, the legacy of his father and him trying to help out these two victims of, of Fu Manchu but yeah you gotta read it anyway listeners long story short I'm a big Shang-Chi fan I'm a big Bruce Lee fan you know, and um, this this issue just gave me everything I needed, <laughs> plus horror in the form of Man Thing. So almost a near perfect issue. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. You're you're right on the money there. Like I said, they really did a good job of you know telling an awesome story here. And you know, like you said, Shang Chi. It's not just a character that you know runs around punching and kicking people. You know. For whatever reason, there's th- that character has a lot more depth than anybody would think from just you know taking a look at it from the outside. Yeah,
0: he's a philosopher, he's a moralist, he's a you know he's a Zen practitioner, and he's a Rolling Stones fan. Come on,
2: mm-hmm. plus there he's
0: a, he's a spy. You know, um, I love love everything about this. This was early days for Shang Chi though. He had not firmly become ensconced in the MI six. You know operations which would be a right. big deal later but you know uh here he was a force to be reckoned with all by his lonesome you know he he did have a supporting cast but they weren't always present uh yeah, they were they were more sort of his enemies at this point in time still trying to, to to figure out if he's the real deal because they knew he was the son of Fu Manchu and an assassin trying to actually take out Dennis Nyland Smith so his supporting cast was actually also composed of enemies, but he basically waded through all of these death traps and, and assassins and crazy foes that Fu Manchu came up with. And he always got out on top. So, you know, that's why I'm, I, I'm always saying Shang-Chi, you know, he's, he's a hard guy to beat. He's kind of like mm-hmm. Conan, you know. Uh, yeah. not, you know, if you know what I mean, like Conan always manages to find a way um, you know, I guess Doctor Strange is also kind of like that. You know, they they, they they use their skill, but they also use their brains and their wit and um, mm. eventually triumph. That's what I love about these Shang-Chi stories. And here, you know, <laughs> we get to see Engelhardt doing what he loves, which is drugging his hero, <laughs> drugging the hero <laughs> of the story, <laughs> having a bit of psychedelia, and then having him try to fight through this miasma of, of weird uh, shit, <laughs> weird hallucinations that happen okay Billy now I want to talk about the art what did you think of that page where Shang-Chi is like zonked out of his mind and he's fighting the man thing and he's wrestling with him and he's getting stuck in his body I that, absolutely... that is my favorite part oh, I love that page <laughs> and the man thing just shambles forward allowing Shang-Chi to treat him as a, a wooden dummy you know that the gongfu guys like <laughs> Ip man and those guys practice on but, you know, he just shambles for it. And Shang-Chi then eventually tries to sort of I, what, what I'm thinking he's doing is try to, to throw the man thing because he's sort of engaging him in a, in a shoulder lock there and, and strains his leg against him. But then the legs pierce the man thing's body and Shang-Chi just succumbs to fatigue at that point in time. And that's when the man thing walks with, the, with Shang-Chi stuck in his body. Now, what does this? <laughs> the, the, Billy, what does this Lu Sun guy do? Check this oh, yeah, out. That's
1: my favorite, my favorite part as Man-Thing is just walking around with a like tripped out <laughs> Shang-Chi. This Lu Sun guy grabs Shang-Chi by the ankles and just pulls him out of Man-Thing. It's oh, ridiculous.
0: damn. Pulls him out basically <laughs> right through the Man-Thing with Shang-Chi's chest, torso, head, everything going through the Man-Thing's innards. Covered in slime and moss and this is probably one of the weirdest things we've talked about on this show ever but yeah, this, this got to be up there <laughs> <laughs> damn and then Lu Sun just deposits him there and walks after Man-Thing trying to see if Man-Thing's okay you mm-hmm. know um, and then he says no 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 he knew that Shang-Chi was fine but this Lu Sun's guy he's a weird cat uh, this, this uh, kind of oh, yeah. a Confucius type of philosopher level guy and then you know we get Shang-Chi getting this flashback as he talks to Lu Sun and that is a great panel right there Billy are you on that page where he's remembering his friend Kui Man Meng and Mm -hmm. his his talk to his father look at the way um, Gulesi framed that 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 panel it's basically like no borders no panel borders Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean there there are panel borders but there's no it's like a story told in different panels but there are no gutters there are no you know, it's not separated by panels. You've got Shang-Chi's face, then you've got three or four different, you know, uh, events being portrayed in one panel. As they're mm. walking down the stairs from this gondola while he's talking to his dad. And you've got a, like a bonsai tree in the background there. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah,
1: for for like a half or two-thirds splash. You know, that's an incredible amount of stuff in that, uh, you know, just one, basically, yeah. one Large panel. That tells yeah.
0: a lot. And the panel, you know, prior to that is Shang-Chi initiating this flashback and then you see the sun, you know, which is behind him turning into this this psychedelic kind of circle, this hypnotic kind of um revolving pattern to uh-huh. to obviously initiate this flashback which has also been fueled by this mimosa drug that he's still got in his system. It's just an amazing bit of art there from Gulacy. And you know, he did that many times. Let's go back a few pages, Billy. Check out the panel where he's just managed to get the better of the two assassins, Jekin and Dahar, which was an epic fight in itself. Uh, again, harking back to some Conan there because the guy's about to chop Shang-Chi with a with a with a karate chop or something, and Shang-Chi uses this this um old broken what, tree stump to block The log or something. The <laughs> log, yeah, this log, and then the sound effect is Krom <laughs> <laughs> Kram. Kram. Oh, I love it. And then, you know, plow. He uses the trees, the the, the, the the log to bash them both into the swamp and then throws it in after them. And then right after whomp. that fight. Yeah. Womp. <laughs> Some great sound effects. <laughs> Billy, right after that, look at that little panel where Shang-Chi is just, it's a silent panel. He's ringed in blue, standing mm-hmm. against the skyline, just looking pensively into the waters because he's thinking at this point in time he's killed these two guys mm-hmm. what a great little panel to insert by guleci there huh just oh, like yeah, and then he's to kung fu chop a snake That's a snake, a snake. <laughs> <laughs> you know this this um comic book has some strong reminiscences for me of that drug sequence from natural born killers do you remember oliver stone's movie oh, yeah there's right this... well, Harrelson, right? Yeah, where, where Harrelson gets bitten by a snake and there's this this crazy, you know, um, drug-like effect trip. on his mind. And you have yeah, this trip and he goes through this hellscape, this, this bad land of of uh, halluc- uh, hallucinations. And this is what shang Chi's sort of experiencing here. So yes. what, what an issue. I mean, I, I've probably exhausted <laughs> my notes by now, but I don't know. There's still some more that I can say about the action panels, but I think we've basically covered everything.
1: <laughs>
0: Whoa. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, it's
1: a that's that's the better of the two issues, and it's not even close.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, this is this is something. This is this is something out of this world. It's one of my, well, favorite team up issues I would say of all time. Really, is Shang Chi uh-huh. and the Man thing in this one, and of course the very first time. I don't know what your history with this comic was, Billy, but the very first time I read it was. Long time ago, probably early 80s, because Master of Kung Fu comics were very easy to come by in South Africa. You know, the uh, the Avengers were not, the Fantastic Four, not so much, Spider Man, no, because they were so popular. But the Master of Kung Fu, strangely enough, were not. Maybe, I don't know why, but I always found them at the corner stores. I filled up, you know, a a nice little run starting from probably, uh, I think it was issue 14 up all the way to to issue 121 and then I missed a few key key issues later on and of course the early ones are very hard to get Um, and I still haven't filled up those but you know I've got them in the omnibus collections and in the epic collection but point is it was easy to get so I read this story very early on and I loved the man thing back then, loved Chang chi and it's always been at the forefront of my mind when I think about team ups
1: Yeah it's a good one, no doubt about that, you know it's not even a (laughs) team-up book like team-up or two-in-one but yeah they do a fantastic job like I said these guys you know the creators behind these two books look at the names two great writers two great artists you know I mean especially the Paul Galassi oh it's just
2: Hmm. the
1: artwork in that book is unbelievable it's definitely a step above you know the daredevil
0: issue no no, no
1: it's the Bob Brown he does a serviceable job but Galassi's artwork is just out of this world it's another level
0: look at the very last panel of the issue Billy or the very last um, panel sequence, I should say, where Shang-Chi leaves the wounded Lu Sun bandaged and leaning against a tree, right? And then he says, Lu Sun, would you contend against Fu Manchu? And Lu Sun just says, would you, Shang-Chi? And Shang-Chi just looks at him frowning, saying Mm -hmm. obviously with one look he would. And then he leaves him, leaving Lu Sun sitting against this tree with the bird's flying in the background the herons right. flying in the background this uh-huh. moss hanging from the tree and Lu Sun's hair whipping in the wind and you've got these flowers in front of him looking like David Carradine or something in, in the oh, series Gong yeah. Fu or in, even in Kill Bull Shades of Kill Bill here and then you hear the very last line of Shang-Chi's thoughts because he always narrates his thoughts you know that's the, the first person narrator technique that you know um, they always used in the Shang-Chi comics uh, and it right. ends with I hear the birds singing dawn has arrived almost like a oh, bit of Chinese poetry there at the end like from Li Bai or Wang Wei or Du Fu or any of those great Chinese poets and then you have next issue weapon of the soul <laughs> <laughs> that's <Wow>. awesome <laughs> it's just it's, it's amazing yeah, it's crazy it is damn it you just want to read that next issue oh absolutely so man I'm so glad you picked these Billy you're the man behind <laughs> this you're the architect of this episode and you picked some doozies
1: Um, that's always in the forefront of my mind is (laughs) weird and like what will we enjoy
0: talking about (laughs) and man did I have fun talking about this listeners we'll be back soon after this short break with Bronze Age Brilliance and Mighty Marvel missteps but don't go away it became intoxicating So, I pushed the lever on toward even greater speed. As I went along, I gained experience in handling the machine. I I found that I could stop for a day, an hour, or even for a second to observe... ...then
2: go ahead a year or two. Thus, I was able to see the changing world in, in a series
0: of glimpses. And then suddenly the light was gone. What had happened? In the year of 1917, I stopped. All right, listeners, we're back with Bronze Age Brilliance and Mighty Marvel Missteps. Billy, what do you have in our Bronze Age Brilliance and Mighty Marvel Missteps categories? I want to hear your thoughts. Take it away, man. Okay, so for the DD issue...
1: um You know, like we said, the Daredevil issue wasn't, you know, quite anywhere near as awesome as the Shang-Chi, but I did enjoy, you know, how Marvel in the even early to mid 60s started trying to tie characters together and show a shared universe. That I did enjoy, you know, having Man-Thing show up there. Deathstalker, Gladiator, all these people interacting with each other, like basically showing a, a cohesive and shared universe, plus, you know, some of the crazy dialogue. Uh, By Gerber, which you can always count on that in a Gerber book, you know, the way uh, you know you had Deathstalker (laughs) talking down to poor Gladiator and demeaning him, and
0: (laughs) dude, (laughs) yeah, that is my favorite Bronze Age brilliance Uh, uh, too in this in that issue because the way Gerber wrote the dialogue of Deathstalker and and the way you (laughs) see that kind of character coming through, uh, all these little Gerberisms in his dialogue, and also you know his uh, you know a kind of arrogant but, uh, but yeah, posh kind of evil nature. I like that character. I, I like the way he, he was written by Gerber. I want to read more of him as a villain. And also I like his look. So I'm going to go with, you know, the, the art on death dealer and also, you know, the way Gerber wrote his dialogue. That's my bronze age brilliance right there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, I mean, for mighty Marvel missteps with DD, um, I just wish there would have been more man thing involvement in the story. You know, mm-hmm. you took daredevil all the way to the swamps in Florida and, you know, have, you know, man thing on the cover, like it's a big deal. And then he literally only had just a few short scenes that like, let's be honest, they didn't even really matter. <laughs> it didn't really matter that he was even in the book because death stalker slapped him down. So, you know, he barely saved DD in the beginning. And then at the end, you know, daredevil kind of got out of the fire himself and, yeah, I guess he might have had to contend with Gladiator, but other than that, really, you know, they just they really didn't have Man Thing do a lot in the issue. I really didn't really. Yeah, you know, I mean the I don't know.
0: yeah the only reason he basically showed up is every time you have a story in Marvel set in the swamps in Florida, Man Thing's going to show up. <laughs> so yeah. but you'd have thought he could do more. But I think at this point in time, Gerber was very much. I mean, this might have been an editorial mandate that he was given, seeing that he was already writing Man Thing.
1: Yeah so Could one be. of the
0: editors because I can't think that Gerber would do this willingly unless it was to boost the sales of Manthing, which apparently at this point in time wasn't that bad so I don't know I, I think Manthing was even selling better than Daredevil at this point but, but don't quote me on that but I remember oh, man I bet he was, too. Man- yeah. Man-Thing was clearing 200,000 copies a month uh, or you know uh, yeah his fear related title was a little bit less than that but you know once it hit Manthing Volume 1 um, so you know what I mean Billy I, I don't, I'm not privy to Daredevil's numbers But, you know, Grant and I talked about the numbers on Man-Thing in Episode 3. It was very Mm -hmm. high. He was a very popular character. The horror craze was hitting it big. So it couldn't have been that. It might have been editorial. That's all I can think of. Like, hey, why don't you put your other character in here? You know, let's let's get some cross-promotional thing going on here. You know, so it might have been from Man-Thing's side that I wanted to boost Daredevil sales, too. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it could be. I mean, I know Daredevil sales, they were never great. And then he that title even went to uh, every other month yeah. at one point. But then Miller,
0: you of know, course. I think uh,
1: they had McKenzie and Miller, and then Miller, that just, it took off from there, went back to being monthly.
0: Yeah, and then it became one of the best, best-selling best Marvel titles of yeah. the 80s. The 80s. Yeah. Yeah. It, was just, it was just incredible. That's, sure. when, that's when I got into Daredevil. That was my Daredevil sweet spot. You know, even though a lot of Daredevil issues were available in South Africa from the early... 70s Um, you know uh, for some reason I in the early 80s I got a hold of the Frank Miller's which was only like maybe one or two years old at that time you know so I don't know why you know it was weird the shipping to to South Africa was really weird back then you know we got Mm. comics from 8 years ago and then we got comics from 2 years ago and then we got comics like a couple of months I I, I don't know exactly how they shipped this stuff, but it was surplus items. You know what I mean, Billy? I've mentioned this before. Everything they couldn't sell in the States, they shipped over. Um, You know, all the extra copies. So, yeah, but, um, you know, Daredevil, I've always loved the character. I I am a fan of the character of Daredevil, but that is my Mighty Marvel misstep here. Um, This comic doesn't give me any reason to like Daredevil, let's say, for instance... As much as I would have during the Frank Miller era, I was more interested in Black Widow. And the fact that she's on the corner box next to his name, I wanted to see more Black Widow. I'm not saying put her into the swamp, but she basically, it feels like they had to shoehorn her into this issue. You know, um, she had nothing to do with the Candace Nelson, Foggy Nelson debacle. She was just there to ask for Matt, and then she swung away to clear her head. Uh, I, I don't know. I just felt like they underused her. Um, and I hate to say something, anything bad about Gerber plots, because usually they were quite uh, you know, uh, imaginative and uh, quirky, just like we like them. But yeah, Black Widow definitely didn't have a big role in this comic, I would've liked her. Yeah, I mean, if they give her cover billing, uh, at least in the corner box, I would like to see a little bit more of her. But you know, you can't always have the same thing. Um, and also another thing I liked is, Shang-Chi works in the swamp for me or in any environment Daredevil does not you know really work in a swamp setting so the fact that they actually had to go to the swamp because of this forced team up with man thing it, it felt like i say a little bit forced you know so yeah, it didn't feel sure. organic or natural like the shang chi appearance did or or that man thing's appearance in shang chi did so yeah that's my uh, my mighty moral missteps just those weird little asides there so Billy, let's get to Master of Kung Fu, number 19. What is your Bronze Age brilliance and Marvel uh, missteps? (laughs) Mighty Marvel missteps. Yeah, I mean, this was tough because
1: there's a lot to love about the issue. You know, I really love Englehart's dialogue and his captions. You know, some of that you read there at the end, especially. I mean, it's just dynamite. It's out out of this world stuff. He must have been watching some, you know, TV shows, like you said, about, you know, Kung Fu and stuff like that and that was a big craze in the 70s as we know too so i'm sure he was you know bringing some of that and putting it into here because that's just so good but like you know glacy and the artwork and just uh it's it's front to back a really good issue really strong issue and i love how you know it's just shang chi is just not some dude running around punching and kicking people for no reason because you know martial arts was you know cool in the 70s yeah, you know, there's a really good backstory there with his father and the intrigue, and like I said, the, the James Bond type elements of it as well. I really, really like that.
0: Yeah, I know this. It's it's great. Yeah. You know? So obviously, because of all those elements, the superior issue. Um, but you know, let's not take too much away from the first issue. I I like both, but this issue for me, Bronze Age brilliance wise, was a marriage of the art and. The plot, the dialogue was is always good by Engelhart, but I wouldn't say in this case it's particularly standout. But he does write it as a like as a Chinese philosopher would speak, you know, because that's how Shang Chi talks. So, you know, um, the narration being Shang Chi's inner dialogue has that quality to it. Well done on that, Engelhart. But you know what I really liked is, the, is is the plot, the way they sort of had to basically what it is is it's Shang Chi being hunted by two assassins. And then it mm-hmm. leads off to this, this drug trip, which, which re- we, we are revealed. <laughs> his first intimation of his father's evil through this flashback induced by this, this uh, trip. And then we also meet this philosopher-type cal- character, Lu Sun, who's yeah totally... I mean, what are the odds of finding another Chinese guy? <laughs> Not an American-born Chinese <laughs> either, a full-on wandering Chinese philosopher guy. Based on David Carradine. In the Everglades. In the Everglades, yeah. <laughs> Who's also the caretaker of the man thing. <laughs> but we never see him again. <laughs> anyway, so loose and... Uh, yeah, interesting. So just the weird trippiness of this entire issue um, is my Bronze Age brilliance. What about your cool. mighty Marvel misstep for uh, Master of Mokf uh, number 19, if I can abbreviate it like that?
1: I really don't have a whole lot. I mean, that one page uh, you described where it was that two-thirds splash page where Shang-Chi was, you know, half, like, on a trip, but then remembering back to uh, when he was in the... the Was it, like, palace or whatever there with his father? And, you know, it showed the the tree in the background and everything you had said about... That page, the... Fu Manchu looks a little wonky there to me. I don't know. I mean, I haven't read a ton of, you know, Master of Kung Fu, but mm. he almost looked like a ghost.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a horror character. Yeah, I think it's because of the flashback they wanted to uh, gain that effect through the art. But you know, a little little scary, yeah. There is a long kind of running gag. It's not really a running gag, but it's almost like a running gag throughout the Shang-Chi series, Billy, where these flashback sequences show many different iterations of of, of Fu Manchu. Um, so uh, it, it does happen really if you read from the beginning to the very end well uh, he stops having flashback sequences around about issue 60 or 65 I can't completely remember but every now and then another one would pop up but in the beginning at least in that first half of the series he has these flashbacks to his childhood and Fu almost always looks different in every flashback You know, well, so what this could comment on is the fact that memory is unreliable you know, our memories are actually—it's—it's it's been proven, you know, in psychological studies, time and time again, especially in the last two decades, memory is not reliable. It's the stuff you—you you firmly recall remembering from your childhood probably never happened. It's either from hearsay or from your, your own imagination filling in the gaps in your memory, and that's mm-hmm. actually been proven. It's an actual, um, you know, cognitive effect of our mind. So it could be a comment yeah. on that, or it could be a comment on the fact that that, um, you know, Fu Manchu is a bit of a chameleon. You know, he has lived so long, because he's immortal, you know, because of his elixir v- vit- vitae, the elixir vitae, which he has perfected, which which makes him immortal. So, you know, he has lived many lives. He's kind of like the Rage al Ghul. I would say you know? his Lazarus pits. Yeah, <laughs> that's his Lazarus pits. So he's kind of yeah. like the Rage al Ghul of the... Uh, Marvel Universe well he's not really part of the Marvel Universe is he he's been loaned he's been on loan from the Sax Romer estate uh, again recently (laughs) just to get the Omnibuy imprint but you know back then he was just uh, you know obviously a a licensed character sort of but you know my point is he has had many looks and and uh, kind of clothing and attire and even like facial fake uh, features during his lifetime and that's how Shang-Chi remembers him you know these different uh, right. versions of his father one version is is good one, one version from his ideal childhood memories one version is when he first is, you know realized he was evil and some of the memories are t- marred by more recent events so he would have a flashback and then he would remember something in the flashback That he, at the time, thought, oh, it's just a quirk of his father's. But now, with current knowledge, he knows that that was actually a sign of the utmost evil. You know what I mean? So, the memory itself will be, yeah, tainted by current memory. So, it's so good. I mean, you should really get into this series, Billy. You should read it from the beginning to the end. I need to, yeah. It never falters. Really, seriously, it never falters. I've never been, ever been disappointed in the Shang-Chi issue. Um, And then you've got such great supporting characters. You've got Black Jack Tar, who's kind of like a Magnum slash James Bond kind of guy. Okay, Reston. Clive Reston is more of the James Bond kind of guy. You've got Dennis Nyland Smith, who's like a Sherlock Holmes kind of uh, character, you know. And then you've got Leiko. Oh my God, Leiko, one of the sexiest ladies ever to be put on the page. Um, Shang-Chi's love interest. And then you've got Shang-Chi's sister, Falo Sui. Oh man, these characters are just, they're off the chain, and then then you've got the the endless number of recurring weird enemies that Fu Manchu keeps coming up with to defeat his undefeatable son. It's just mm-hmm. crazy. It's crazy and amazing, and I love that series. I'm going to go down into my grave, into my coffin, buried in Shang Chi comics, if I can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is such a it's a like a whole universe
1: of its own. You know what I mean? It didn't even he doesn't even need to have any other characters in his book you know to help him along it's just like a huge I'm just trying to think like treasure trove of you know stories there to be
0: had exactly man so you know endless things to say about this but we'll get back to Shang-Chi I'm sure Billy in uh, later episodes there are some suitably weird episodes that warrant our attentions for this podcast but I guess that you know basically wraps it up for Bronze Age Brilliance and Mighty Marvel Missteps listeners again we're gonna have a brief break Stay tuned. Don't go away. We'll be back after this.
2: What is this? No shop talk? God damn it. I wanted to hear some news from the industry. I'll have to go to my LCS here in the Dark Dimension again. What am I getting these days? Well, certainly not the Doctor Strange title. I mean, it's being cancelled. AGAIN! I wish I was responsible for that. That's the way I'll get my revenge, Steven. Hitting you where it counts. In the bank. Well, since these two lazy so-called podcasters don't want to talk shop, I guess it's time for the recommendations of Rekordor again. Oh well, perk up your ears, listeners. Because there might be a quiz later on. then if you fail, you'll be visiting me in the Dark Dimension soon. Where it's 24 hours of the Dormado cast. Battering your eardrums, silly. <laughs> you'll be a mindless one in no time. See you soon. strange
0: things. <laughs> Alright listeners, we're back, and this time we're foregoing our shop talk segment for the recommendations of Ragador. As you've heard Dormammu just say, you know, he's disappointed that we uh, you know, skipped Shop Talk, but whatever, you know, we'll we'll talk about <laughs> what we need to talk about briefly and, and here in taiwan things haven't really changed much we've still got the you know two comic book stores here in taipei running and uh, they seem to you know have survived um and uh, yeah things are getting uh, up and running over there as well so new comics coming in very happy about that and uh yeah we survived uh well we don't know how long we're going to survive the, the the whole effect but you know really at least the comic book yeah. industry is um you know Uh, trying their best and all of our friends online and on Twitter are also supporting the industry as we all should so yeah listeners if you can pick up your your pre-orders pick up your uh, books that are waiting for you at the shops and um, let's keep this ball rolling because it's so much fun (laughs) absolutely where would we be without comics but let's get right into it Billy speaking about comics and where would we be without them recommendations of Ragador what do you have for us this week
1: Okay, so this week I have a book, and I'm not even sure how I found out about this uh, this trade. Uh, it might have been that I was just visiting the comic book store and I saw it on the shelf. It actually came out in eight single issues, and then they traded it. Uh, it's called Marvel 1602.
0: Have you heard of this one, Herman? I loved it. I love Marvel 1602. Isn't it? I mean, it's it's written by Neil Gaiman, isn't it? Or am I wrong? Yep. Yeah, it's yep. Neil, Gaiman. Neil Gaiman written,
1: illustrated oh. by Andy Hubert. Loved it. uh, it's Loved just it. it was it was crazy. I read the back of it and you know it gives you the premise. And I thought to myself, uh, okay. I don't know about this. I I, <laughs> I like my Marvel characters, you know, in the now, but I remember I read it and I was blown away. I yeah. could not believe how good it
0: was. It's amazing. It's an Elseworlds kind of tale. I mean, obviously DC, the Elseworlds is a DC thing, but this is like an alternate Marvel Universe. I don't a know what if, if it's the, yeah, yeah it's like a what, a what if. if. It's like a what if. What if the Marvel Universe was jump-started in Shakespearean era London <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in the year 1602? Oh, don't you just love the interpretation of Doctor Strange? He's like a courtier. He's like one of the Queen's right-hand men. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, and, and they've, got, they've got the Fantastic Four there. They're called the Fantastics. And uh, what else? Oh, man. Everybody shows up.
1: And, oh, yeah, yeah it's, and it's
0: and it's interesting, too, because
1: there are some characters that, you know, in the regular, you know, 616 Marvel Universe are, uh, you know, heroes, but they're not so uh, yeah, they're villains. heroic. Yeah, they're not so mm. heroic in this uh, version. So it is really neat to see how they play with those characters. And, yeah, I for- uh, yeah, I was blown away.
0: Oh, I love it. I forgot what they called them, but basically they had a name for superheroes, you know, in the 6102 um, universe. Um, that I don't recall. Something to do with the weird, like weirdlings, or the or the weird with a Y. I don't know. Uh-huh. But they called them a certain name. We'll we'll, we'll uh, f- uh, include that in the blog once I track down my copy. I've got the trade here somewhere. I should I should reread it again. It's so good. Neil Gaiman, uh-huh. man, what a master.
1: Yeah, he's incredible. I mean, you can just read this and it'll blow your mind. I couldn't believe how good it was. I was really, like, shocked at how much I loved it. Yeah,
0: it's a, it's a great recommendation, Billy. And, you know, I can't write... Uh, damn it. I can't recall... The, who's the artist on that? It's, like, very distinctive. our famous guy, just... Right, the name just left my mind. It's Andy Kubert. Andy Kubert. And then the
1: finishes are Richard Eisenhoff.
0: Ah, <gasps> oh, Richard Eisenhoff. Yeah, yeah, I heard the Andy Kubert name, the Richard Eisenhoff. That guy, I, I love his art so much.
1: Yeah, I think what he did is I think Andy Kubert uh, penciled, and then uh, Richard Eisenoff did uh, like a digital painting mm. over those pencils, like yeah. finishes. It's it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, you know me, I'm more of an old school guy. Like I'm not huge into digital artwork, but this yeah. looks incredible. It, it fits and it fits this this perfect fits his story.
0: Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Mm. Oh, thanks. Great recommendation, Billy. I want to reread that now as well. So, listeners, if you haven't pick that up find it somewhere it's on the marvel app but get the trade if you can or the original issues i don't know but get it any which way you can it's worth it uh as for me billy i went back into my old long boxes you know recently for no well the reason was because my wife and i we recently well i a couple of months ago i watched uh, the new the uh, invisible man the the horror movie you know oh, all right yeah the
2: remake, so yeah.
0: yeah the remake from the universal studios and uh, old character from you know, and of course, based on the h g. Wells novel the invisible Man now uh in my collection of supernatural thrillers, I do have issue number two, which is supernatural yeah. thrillers featuring the invisible man
2: mm-hmm. now this
0: copy is battered and worn and and it's it's basically i mean it looks terrible this copy because I picked it up when I was a kid and never bagged and boarded my stuff in the early eighties and <laughs> <laughs> this one shows the where but because of you know my wife and I we watched the movie and it was so great and uh, I mean it's not my favorite horror movie of all time but it's definitely one of the best that came out this year you know I thought okay I'd revisit some old Invisible Man stuff so I listened to the audiobook, the H.G. Wells audiobook, uh, on Audible on this big collection mm-hmm. where you get like all of H.G. Wells' books in one big Audible file and wow. it's only, only one credit for that too and it's really good and uh, then I thought, okay, I'm going to pull out this Marvel comic of mine again. And I, almost, I was almost afraid to read it because this thing's almost falling apart in my fingers. <laughs> oh. I, I mean, it's like a zero, zero grade, <laughs> you know, if you could grade this thing. <laughs> anyway, uh, Supernatural Thrillers number 2 from February 1972. Adapting H.G. <laughs> Wells as The Invisible Man. Written by Ron Goulart with <laughs> pencils by... Man-Thing artist Val Myrick. Yep. And Dan Adkins as well on that one, doing the inks. Roy Thomas, the editor. Now, this is the entire H.G. Wells' Invisible Man story congested into one single issue. And the art is stunning. Uh, it's just mm-hmm. great. It starts with the Invisible Man entering this tavern. You know, he's, he's already on the run he just wants a quiet place to to do the experiments to make himself visible again. But you know he's outed, and his paranoia takes hold. He starts to murder people in this town. He you know elicits the help of this old you know traveling well bum. <laughs> I don't know what he is like a tramp and <laughs> a, a transient, a yeah. transient. And then you know he escapes these folks of this town who are now you know sussing out that he's the thief, he's the murderer, he's the guy who's been going around perpetrating all these crimes. He engages the services of a doctor uh, in, at one point in time to help him to, to um, you know, to to get the formula right, to get himself visible again. But, you know, at the end, he just relishes in his invisibility and he's just completely insane. So now yeah. you can see where movies like The Hollow Man has been inspired from, from this, you know, how invisibility is going to drive you insane. He's, he develops this God complex and then eventually, right. you know, they track him down and, and they kill him. You know, he's wounded, he leaves a trail of blood, they use bloodhounds, all of this kind of stuff. And they, you know, basically the police club his naked body to death, which isn't a great image these days. But, you know, at the end of this issue, you really feel he deserved it because holy Griffin, this guy, this invisible man of H.G. Wells, he's one of the most reprehensible characters in fiction, probably. Uh, yeah, Yeah, and then it ends it ends you know on a very nice note with a bit of a twist ending having this tramp that that, you know carted away his writings admitting to himself that he's now studying the formula and soon he will be the new invisible man (laughs) (laughs) and uh, it's a great issue I one of my childhood favorites but obviously I there's not a lot of read left in this issue Uh, it's in tatters I'm gonna have to somehow but it's hard to come by very hard to find these early issues of supernatural thrillers that's my recommendation, though, listeners. If you do somehow manage to track down this issue, cherish it because it is a work of art. I wonder, do they have it on the Marvel app, like
1: digitally or no?
0: Mm, nope, I, I didn't find it on the Marvel app. But like I say, my Marvel app's a little bit wonky these days, but I didn't even bother checking. But I, I checked a couple of months ago and it wasn't there. So I don't know. But, uh, but it bears mentioning we should probably check so that the listeners can probably pick it up. I'm trying again think- now. i think you
1: can get it in that magazine uh let me look quick here i think it's in that magazine what was it called i think where they only printed like three or four of them two or three of them maybe masters of terror or something like that Oh, it was a magazine yeah it was number two masters of terror number two magazine okay and it's on the it's on the front cover i think it's a steranko Right yeah, so that's that's another place you can find it if you can get a hold of that, but you know those are getting scarce too. Yeah, they're gonna, gonna, well crazy expensive.
0: yeah, you're gonna have to focus on a reprint here, folks because yeah, this yeah. is gonna be difficult to find by I think it was um also reprinted in uh, Marvel classics comics number twenty five uh, which I just saw online. Mm. yeah you know, I'm, I'm here now, but you know uh, that in itself will also be hard to find because. That was printed in well released in January 1978, so <laughs> it's going to be hard. Yeah, I don't see any other collections here that you can find it in other wa- other than the Masters of Terror that you mentioned. So, um, I don't know. I mean, it c- can't be an estate issue. All of H.G. Wells' stuff is in the public domain, so Marvel should mm-hmm. reprint all of that stuff. It might be in a collection that we don't know about. Listeners, please let us know if you know anywhere that you can find this issue other than in the original form. We'd, we'd love that. We'd love to know. Alright, well now it's time for a quick promo, and then we're gonna head on into our Allies of Agamotto segment where we're assigning a Bronze Age alter ego to a five-star iTunes reviewer. But before we get into that, here's something from an old friend. Hey, do you like the 90s comic book tropes of a big beefy guy with a huge gun
1: and big shoulder pads and lots of spikes and a bad attitude? Me either too narrow-minded, no subtlety, but I'll tell you what I do like, the character who started the whole trend. I'm Grant Richter. In 2018, I did a project where
2: I detailed every adventure of the superhero known as Cable, 280 characters at a time, from 1993 to 2006. And now, it's time to start the whole thing at the beginning and take it to an audio format. So be sure to check out the Cable
1: Guide at anchor.fm slash cableguide. I'll see you soon because with cable, it's always just a matter of time.
0: Right. This week for our Allies of Agamotto, we first want to give a big shout out to Austin Flynn, who sent us an email to sinkintheweird at gmail.com. Austin says, Hi, guys. Just want to say I really enjoy the show. Believe it or not, I've never listened to a podcast, but I have been reading comics since 1979. With work and family, I have very few people who share my interests, so hearing you guys talk about topics I love make my day. Hope all is well, and thanks again. Austin. Austin, thanks, man. We really appreciate it, and uh, we're so glad you enjoy the show. That's why we're doing this, to um, share our loves of the Bronze Age and comics in general with you guys. And, um, you know, I'm hoping you could jump on Twitter because that's where the discussion gets really interesting. Um, So if you do, let us know. But if not, you know, uh, keep sending us um, mails and we'll keep reading them on the show. Uh, We really appreciate it. Thank you, Austin. All right, everybody, this week, I'd also like to, of course, start off the Allies of Agamotto by thanking Seven Kingdoms, the band of legend, who's generously supported us uh, throughout um, these last two and a half years of doing the show. They've allowed us to use their song In the Walls, as our main uh, podcast theme and we really, really thank them for that we're grateful to the band and I would suggest that you listeners if you haven't checked out their stuff yet go on to iTunes or, or listen to them on Spotify or buy their albums any which way you can support them, share their stuff, tweet them they're really great and um, definitely in our wheelhouse a great rock slash metal band that I would always go on pimping <laughs> because they're just that damn fine a band all right, so uh, with that out of the way, of course, we have to get to our Bronze Age uh, Alter Ego recipient, and this is a man by the name of the Cathode Ray Phantom. That's his iTunes um, name that he used to leave us a stunning five-star iTunes review. I'm going to read that review for you guys right now. Now, I have to mention before I get into this, I don't know much about you, Um Uh, Ray, I'm just gonna call you Ray so I came up with something based off of your name Um, uh, to the best of my knowledge you're not following us on Twitter, we're not interacting with you on Twitter but um, you wrote a very in-depth and uh, well-written review here for us, Um, so much appreciated man, and based off of your name Cathode Ray Phantom and also a couple of other things that I'll mention later, I came up with your Bronze Age Alter Ego all right. The review that Ray wrote to us is as follows. Um, this was written on uh, the second of September. Uh, sorry, the second of November, twenty nineteen, last year. All right. Ray starts with the following: "By the hoary hosts of Hogarth, this is great." Wanting a new podcast to listen to on my way to work, and being of a certain age, I was surprised to find a Doctor Strange icon in my search for a Marvel podcast. Curious, I clicked on it and went into the weird. All right, then Ray goes on to say, Back in the day, I never delved deep into the Bronze Age Marvel genre books, preferring Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. As close as I typically got to the horror comics was Black Talon, turning Wonder Man into a Zvembi. Thanks, Comics Code. In Avengers 152. However, one of the first comics I ever had was a Man-Thing number 20, where demons impersonated the Thing, Spider-Man, Daredevil, Shang-Chi, and other cast members. I remember the art being different and actually scary. The other monster characters would pop up in 2-in-1 or Marvel Team-Up. What Ghost Rider did to the Trapster in Marvel Team-Up scared me. So, I was aware of that. Occasionally, I would have a friend who had the odd issue of Werewolf by Night or Tomb of Dracula, and the Monster of Frankenstein book and record set was everywhere, it seemed. So, I was aware of them. Why do I tell you all this? Well, because even with my peripheral knowledge of the Marvel horror-, horror titles, after I started episode 13 of Into the Weird, Mama waldy has got nothing on me, I was hooked. It was a side of the Marvel Bronze Age with which I was completely unfamiliar. The casual conversational style of Herman and Billy reminded me of the discussions I used to have with friends about the comics of our youth. The mighty Marvel missteps and Bronze Age brilliance segments were a blast, both done with the love for the source material. These guys kept my attention through the entire over-two-hour podcast. The biggest compliment I can give is that they made me want to go back and track down these issues to read them. I can guarantee that I will be digging through their back issues and savoring every one. Wow, that was a great, great review. All right, so, Ray, as a thank you, this is what I came up with. Before I get into your origin story and your alter ego... I have to explain my thought process here. I was stumped for a couple of weeks. I couldn't come up with anything concrete. And then, you know, based on a Rick and Morty episode I saw uh, called Interdimensional Cable. And uh, also a recent horror movie I watched. Well, it's actually one of uh, the classics of horror starring Christopher Lee from the early 1970s. But I watched it again recently a couple of times, um, I'll let you uh, listeners try to suss out which horror movie it is based on the origin that I ascribe to Ray. Based off of this Rick and Morty episode and this horror movie, um, as well as some stuff that I've been reading, I came up with this uh, origin story for you. So I hope you like it, Ray. All right, let's get into this, folks. Raised by TV thanks to inattentive parents young ray summer isle grew up filled to the brim with movie trivia and a deep knowledge of the inner workings of the boob tube this was due in part to a ridiculously high iq an ideatic memory a questioning nature and a predilection for forbidden science the endless hours watching star trek reruns coupled with the long nights of disassembling and reassembling television sets, would eventually ruin little Ray's eyesight, but he was not overly concerned by this, wanting only to become one with the flickering images on his beloved LCD and plasma screens. In spite of this time-consuming obsession with TV, Ray found academics to be a breeze. When he graduated valedictorian from his obscure high school in bumfuck USA, He naturally headed off to MIT on a full scholarship but soon came to realize that school just isn't a place for smart people. After flunking out he drifted around, his love of movies and television technology leading him to take jobs in blockbusters, Circuit City and dozens of radio shacks across the country. He briefly joined a fight club and became an anarchist space monkey. But this turned out to be a pipe dream after his handler shot himself. Then, Ray became a drifter, a cyber drifter, trying his hand at startups and investing what little money he had in fledgling computer companies. But fortune never favored him. That is, not until he got a letter from the lawyer of his recently deceased great-uncle twice removed, an enigmatic dark horse from his family tree called... Lord Summerisle. As it turns out, Ray was Lord Summerisle's closest surviving relative, and vast wealth and property, which included an island off the coast of Scotland, was left to Ray in a strangely drafted will, written in outdated but flowery script on parchment that smelled faintly of burnt willow bark. Selling the island and other properties, Ray further engorged his already overflowing bank accounts and used all this as capital to fund his own movie production company, Phantom Ray Films. He enjoyed unprecedented success for a number of years, but then tragedy struck. His eyesight, violated by uncountable days and nights of raw screen time, finally went kaput. Now legally blind and robbed of his favorite pastimes, Ray turned his company into a tech research facility specializing in ocular cybernetics, intent upon finding some means of regaining his lost power of sight. Eventually, after grueling hours in the lab, surrounded by the finest scientists the field of optics had to offer, He succeeded. Ray's tired old orbs were surgically replaced with prototype cyber-eyes that made him something other than human. Hailed in the media as a medical and technological marvel, Ray kept upgrading his eyes with his own tech, turning them into more than just modes of vision micro-projectors controlled by fledgling AI-run systems connected to TV and radio signals from around the globe, allowing him to project any movie or TV program he desired as a hologram from his eyes. Perfect in every detail, save for the occasional flicker. He soon pushed his tech even further, bolstering his AI's signal receptors until, in a burst of genius, he managed to breach the fabric of the multiverse itself, giving him the ability to tap into TV content from infinite dimensions. Still not willing to rest on his laurels, Ray went even further, creating and inserting DNA scanners into his cyber-eyes that identified the DNA of an individual and finding said individual's multiversal doppelgangers if they showed up in other-verse media. He then projected said individual's multiversal escapades as a hologram, enrapturing the person and unwittingly addicting them to interdimensional TV, as they obsessively viewed their alternate lives. Gearing up to market his newest inventions, destiny intervened once again, as Ray was rudely interrupted by a home invasion one night. It turned out that his sale of the Summers Isle Scottish Island had had unforeseen consequences, such as evicting the long-time pagan farmers who had maintained the bountiful fruit orchards and farmland on the island for centuries. The pagan primitives wanted revenge in the name of their wicker god, ...and blamed Ray for the failure of their harvests. Tracking him down from beyond the Atlantic, they entered his home and menaced him with rusty scythes and hoes. In a blind panic, Ray inadvertently scanned his attacker's DNA and projected holograms of their interdimensional selves... ...who had made it big as TV and movie stars, news anchors and game show hosts in other realities and paraded these images on his living room floor via the projectors in his cyber eyes. Stunned as their senses overloaded, the pagans were quickly hypnotized by this procession of flickering images and flickering other lives, leaving Ray to brain each one of them with a Callaway golf club at his leisure. After the police carted the unwashed and gamey pagans away... Ray brooded long into the night. The surge of fear he had felt when his life was threatened was as nothing compared to the elation he had felt at taking out those manic May cultists. Little sleep came to him that night. By the next day, his mind had been made up. He would use his tech to combat evil. From that day forth, Ray became a scourge of the willfully ignorant, the evil luddites and the crazed zealots. With his cyber eyes that could see into any spectrum and his twin optic projectors that tapped the untold lives of his foes interdimensional selves, thereby hypnotizing them on the spot with flickering possibilities, he proved an immensely effective superhero. It was Ray that distracted Galactus with his holograms, projecting a reality where the awesome planet Eater was a go-go dancer in a celestial nightclub, giving Reed Richards the valuable time he needed to prime the ultimate nullifier. It was Ray who nudged Jean Grey during the X-Men's Imperial Guard battle on the moon, showing her a future alternate reality where she was living as an unfulfilled housewife in a cabin in the Canadian wilderness, slowly losing her mind as she nursed her infant pack of hairy little man-cubs. It was Ray, who entertained Thanos after his battle with Eternity by showing him a reality where his brother Starfox suffered from some incurable cosmic venereal disease, thereby giving Nebula the chance to snatch the Infinity Gauntlet from the Mad Titan's inert hand. Despite these epic heroic feats, Ray was equally at home battling street level thugs. He even developed a calling card of sorts. After hypnotizing criminals with his flickering holograms, he would promptly lay them out with an impressive haymaker, learned during his fight club days, of course. These haymakers would leave his foe with a trademark scar on his or her jaw or cheekbones, a scar. In the form of a skull encapsulated by a TV screen, courtesy of a smartly designed ring on the middle finger of his devastating right hand. Visit the raft, the big house, the icebox, or the cube, and you'll see inmates such as flat screen Fred, zombie Harlan Allison and his sidekick, the glass teat, the boob tuber, the May Queen, idiot box, and Evil Zatoichi from Dimension X. That one was a tough one. Blind villains are Ray's kryptonite. All of them sporting the trademark tube skull scars on their ugly mugs. All testaments to Ray's heroic prowess. So let's hear it for the patron of projection, the silver screen sensation, the lord of the limelight. The primetime prince of anti crime. The hologram huckster. The celluloid seducer. The cinematographic sensation. Three cheers for Ray Summer aka the flicker man. And that's it, Ray, your Bronze Age alter ego ready and wrapped up with a bow. <laughs> Thanks again, man, for the great review. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of our Allies of Agamotto and our Bronze Age alter ego. Yeah, for sure. But, Billy, again, that brings us to an end of another episode of Into the Weird. We'll leave you with our credentials, <laughs> the places you can find us and contact us. By now, you know our credentials. <laughs> Two assholes talking comics <laughs> <laughs> and owning it. But um Absolutely. Yeah, Billy, I'll let you go first. Where can folks find Mr. Billy Delicious and his cult 45 online? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, so just look me up on Twitter, at underscore underscorelicious, and then uh, my blog, magazinesandmonsters.com, and a Facebook page by the same name, magazinesandmonsters.
0: and Monsters. That's right. And folks, look out for an upcoming episode of the podcast, Magazines and Monsters where you, Billy, put out an episode, or you were going to put out an episode, which stars your podcast partner, me. <laughs> and we're talking about some horror movies.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. We love talking horror. So there's going to be a, a movie uh, coming up real soon. So I'll be ready on the lookout for that. I'll have yeah. it out there.
0: Yeah, by the time this podcast drops this very episode, it might already be up. So, yeah, listeners, enjoy a Magazines and Monsters episode. Um, and then you know uh, you can find me at Dark Longbox on Twitter. I'm also at Into Weird, the account that Billy and I run uh, together. Um, that's where you can find all news and updates about our podcast. And then uh, Into the Weird has, um, well, recently, um, I should say me as <laughs> Into the Weird, I've endeavoured to uh, revive the Longbox of Darkness. So um, we're more active now on that. I've got a new podcast partner, Misty Graves. You can follow her at Misty G Comics. She's a lady who loves her horror comics. And um, so The Long Box of Darkness is back. We've got two new episodes out, uh, one featuring a discussion of Elvira and her House of Mystery issues from DC in the 80s, and one featuring a Richard Corbin tale, which uh, was his adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death from Dark Horse Comics. So look for those if you're of a mind to listen to some horror comic discussions. I hope you like those. Um, listeners, we'll th- with that, we'll leave you with a final message from Into the Weird. All folks are welcome to listen to the podcast, Everybody's Weird in Their Own Way. It includes you, listener, whoever you are. We love all of you. We don't discriminate because weirdness is weird and weird is cool. And that's what we're all about, right, Billy? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So revel in your weirdness and come back again next time for another... Bout of bizarre Marvel Age Bronze with Into the Weird. Stay cool, folks. Bye-bye.